Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Today's reading is from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is, in con- if it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become over. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Thank you so much, and welcome. Um, it's, it's a real pleasure. I think uh, there's a number of faces I haven't met before, so thanks for being with us. Um, I'm trying out two bits of technology. Firstly, I've got the headset that Stephen, it turns out Stephen's got a much smaller head than I do, so I'm a bit uncomfortable. Um, in a metaphorical sense, I'm, I'm sure none of you are surprised. The other bit of technology I'm trying out is some, something we've just, we're trialing it. Uh, this is called Speepsy. Um, it is actually for anyone who needs or it would help you to have a transcription 
in your own language, in the language that you speak first on your phone, this is doing that right now. Um, all you would have to do to get that, I think we may have missed the boat on it today, but um, there are QR codes in the cafe and by the coffees over there. And all you need to do in the future, I'm going away to Singapore this week, so uh, if, if this all goes horribly wrong, it's definitely not my fault. Um, but in future weeks, you can try this. You just, um, you will log on, on or you don't even need to log on, you just scan a QR code, it will go straight onto the um, website and you will get live transcription of the service happening. As you can see, it's not happening on my phone at the moment. Um, but so we're, we're wanting to do that because we recognize many people are coming in from different backgrounds with different languages that they speak first. And this might help to fill in the gap. It might help to uh, make these services a little bit more accessible to people. Um, we hope that at least, but we will need feedback about how good it is. It is relying on Google and Microsoft's translation algorithms, which I don't know how good they are, and I don't know if they can keep up when I don't pronounce things correctly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when I say etc., I don't know what it will do. <laughs> but let's not be too conscious of that. But we do want to let you know that we are trialing this so that we can see if it's going to work for us as a church. Because we get so many guests and visitors from all around the world, it might be a good idea. Who knows? Let's find out together. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love your word. We love that your word transforms us. We love that your word is so true and honest. It's captivating, it's rich. It's layered. And by your spirit, you can move in mighty power in our hearts when we listen to your word. And when we see that it's pointing us to Jesus, when we see that it's honoring the Father in heaven, when we recognize it's leading us into a better life, this is a, such a privilege. So Lord, let us learn from you today, together and put this into practice. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So for anyone who has joined us this week um, and hasn't necessarily been with us, I'm asking the question, well, where are we right now? Where are we in the letter? Where are we in our situation? Well, we're actually in a small little home, if we can have the next slide. We're on a, in a small little home in Rome, which has received a letter from an apostle, a man who was... Uh, given the responsibility by God through Jesus to uh, really create the foundation of the early church. And he would write letters, sometimes to people that he knew, but sometimes in advance to churches when he wanted to visit them. And he would write to them. And this letter, it's likely has been delivered by a woman called Phoebe. And this little house church in the city of Rome 2,000 years ago are getting together weekly, regularly, to talk about the letter that Paul has written to them. And they're going through it bit by bit, likely, and it's, I imagine, causing all sorts of conversation as they all walk home together afterwards, and then they come back for the next week. And in this last part that we're looking at in Romans 12, Paul has started by saying, by the mercies of God, what he means by that is, look, do everything to constantly remind each other of what God has done for you already. 
Don't think that you need to achieve God's favor. Don't think that you need to work your way into salvation. I've just explained over 11 chapters how God has called sinners and saved sinners into salvation, into a state of being justified and being right in the sight of God, simply because Jesus died for them. And it's through faith that we gain all of these promises. So by the mercies of God, and then he says, when you're coming together like this in your small little gathering, you don't need to burn incense or you don't need to bring an animal sacrifice as you might have done if you were a Roman in that time. You don't need to do those things because actually you all coming together is the sacrifice that pleases God. And as you're doing this, as you're starting to gather together, you're learning little bits every single week. Try and let these change your mind because the world out there really wants you to think in different ways. Think in ways that don't include God in the picture. They want you to go this way or that. Well, just let your learning redirect you every single week, regularly. Learn this stuff. Renew your thinking. Let your thinking be renewed. And as you come together like this, don't be folded back into the ways of the world where every group, every society always ends up with a hierarchy. But actually in this community, Paul is saying, I don't want anyone to think more highly of themselves than others. Actually, you're all equal in this because you've all been brought in equally by Jesus. And as you come in like this, you've all got gifts. God has designed you in various different ways to contribute. So the slave might actually be able to lead the meeting. God may have gifted him in that way. The master might actually have a gift of service that they've never explored before. But everyone should be using these gifts. And the point is, when you come together like this, it should feel like family. Because many of you will have left your families or even been disowned by your families because of your choice to follow Jesus. And so this is your new family. And for those who are meeting in their own homes, you've got to treat people like they are family to you. And he carries on and he wants them to say, okay, now that you're family, do not allow the slaves to sit in the corner. That's what the world does. In that day and age, the slaves, children, women would be put, put away in the corners. They would be ignored. Don't do that in our society. Don't do that in the Jesus household. They are just as honorable as anyone else. They're just as important. And so masters, don't resort to your old techniques of telling your slaves to go and get the food and everything. No, no, no. When you're gathered as a church, you act completely differently. And then as we looked at last week, Paul says, and don't run out of energy. Don't lose the passion. Don't lose the fire. Don't lose the juice, the excitement for this. And you can imagine at that moment as Phoebe looks up, having read all of these things, and the group have talked about them over a number of weeks. The new converts, the people who've just joined the Jesus community and they've just put their faith, they're pumping their fists. Yeah, this sounds exciting. But those who've been in this for a while, those who have maybe been disowned by their families, they've been for months or years meeting with this church. They've been trying to tell people about the good news of Jesus and they're getting backlash. And people don't want to hear what they have to say. 
and actually life has become harder and they're trying to keep going. But at this point, maybe when Phoebe's saying, and don't lose the fire, keep the zeal, they're starting to roll their eyes perhaps. And in my imagination, this is the moment when Phoebe rolls up the scroll a little bit and says, okay, everyone stand up. I did I genuinely thought this week I could try this. I could get us all to go outside and then I thought that would be absolute chaos. So we're not. But Phoebe gets the group. Okay, let's all go outside for a second and let's just look at Rome. Let's look at the city of Rome that God has put us in. And I want you to use your imaginations. Because uh, now I'm going to say three things to you. I want you to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and persevere in prayer. I want you to rejoice in hope. Rejoicing in hope means painting this city of Rome with the promises of God. Imagining this city of Rome covered with the glory of God, with all of God's promises from the Old Testament fulfilled in this place. I want you to use your imaginations. I want you to get excited for this cause again. I want you to take these things deep and to think about them and dwell on them. I don't want you to lose the zeal. And the way that you're going to keep the zeal for this mission is first by remembering what God is going to do in the future. And by thinking about it and living for that future today. I want you to rejoice in hope. And I imagine Phoebe, either she might have known or maybe she hoped that someone in the congregation would have known the promises in the Old Testament about this new future reality for the world. Let's go through a few of them. Amos 9. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. Now, again, that sounds chaotic because the person who's trying to pick up all the food, like pick up all the fresh, ripe produce from the last harvest is suddenly being overtaken by someone planting new stuff because the land is so abundant. There's the apples and the, the grapes are growing so fast that you're picking them and someone else is planting them and they're overtaking you. It, this is a picture of incredible natural abundance. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. The Lord, uh, sorry, Zechariah 14, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Micah chapter 4, verse 3, God will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Isn't that a future we long for? And then in 2 Peter in the New Testament, chapter 3, verse 13, it says, But in keeping with God's promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells where righteousness dwells, a world where the right thing is done. And all relationships are right. There isn't any wrong. There's no division. There's no disruption in relationships anymore. We have the holistic right relationship with God and with one another. 
a people living in harmony. But here's the thing I'd love you to see about this reality, about all of these different promises that we're painting over the city of Rome in this analogy is, look how earthy that plan is. Look how muddy it is. Look how physical it is. Because we want to remember that God hasn't given up on this plan to remake our planet, the cosmos, the creation that he put in order. And he said to Adam and Eve, go out and make this thing flourish and make it the best it could be. Make righteousness dwell in every corner of this planet. God hasn't now given up on the planet and he says, "Mm, I'm just going to snatch people up to heaven now. That's all I'm going to do. So when they die, they go to heaven. Great. And we'll all be floaty, floaty up in the sky. Now look how earthy these promises are. The plan that God has for this planet involves a real place with real people. It is not some ethereal spiritual reality that everyone just ends up blended in with the universe or floating away somewhere. That is other philosophy. Those are other religions. But the the Bible has always taught there is going to be a real place full of real people. And Jesus expected this. He said the meek will inherit the earth, not the clouds, the earth. Jesus imagines a future where there's dirt under his fingernails as he's walking and talking and spending time with his people. That is the future hope. And you can imagine maybe as they've all walked outside to look at this city of Rome, one of the children's holding his mum's hand and says, is it real? Is that going to be real? Now, if she was a believer, she wouldn't say, I hope it will be, because that is not biblical hope. It isn't, mm, and it might be, might not be. The biblical idea of hope is that is a definite reality. I think the mum would have turned to her son and said, of course that's going to be true. Of course it's real. It's as real as when Jesus rose from the dead, and that man Thomas that visited our church recently, he, he met him, he touched him. It's as real as when Jesus ate bread and fish with those other apostles that we've heard about. It's that real. It's as real as when Jesus rose from the dead. That is how real that future reality is because he is the first fruits of that. It would look really weird if Jesus was stood on a physical planet and all of us were floating like ghosts around his head. We are going to be there as well in physical bodies. So maybe the kid then looks up at his mum and says, well, will I be there? Well, if you believe in Jesus, if you follow him, then yes. But I want to tell you this. It will be more you than you have ever been before. All of us in this world, there is something not quite right about all of us. Every single day. Whether it's in our thoughts, in our physical bodies, in our health, in our emotions in our behavior, there's something not quite right about us. That's called in the Bible unrighteousness. There is something not right about all of us as we grow up. Every single day. In this new creation, 
in this world where we're following Jesus into that reality, everything will be right. Everything will be put right or restored or glorified or magnified. Everything that's good about you will be even better. It will be enhanced and everything that's wrong will be dealt with by Jesus at the cross. This is a world full of righteousness where we're no longer suffering and maybe this child holding his mum's hand has got disease in his arm that they've been praying for years and it's never gone away. And who knows, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't through prayer, but it definitely would in the new creation. That chronic disease, whatever it is that's hindering him, it would be gone. And he would be alive and more alive than he's ever been before in this future reality. It says in 1, uh, 1 John 3, we know that when Christ appears, when he comes home to his home on this planet, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And then in Philippians 3, it says, We eagerly await. And this is about rejoicing in hope, getting excited about this. We eagerly await a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies. Now, I don't know who the fittest, I, I feel like Keegan, who was going to run a marathon recently, is maybe the fittest amongst us. But sorry, you've got a lowly body. <laughs> so that they will be like Jesus' glorious body. Every single one of us who put their trust in him. Now the boy looks up at his mum and says, who else will be there? People from places you've never even heard of. Jesus said it in the Gospels. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Cheekily, he then asked, well, what are we going to eat? You'll have Japanese noodles, Singaporean rice, stinky tofu from Taiwan, Kung Pao chicken from China, borscht from Russia, and dumplings from Ukraine. It will be a worldwide feast which will represent the peace amongst the nations that Jesus has created. So God wants us to be very excited for this reality, very, very excited and rejoicing in hope for that future world. But then he wants to bring us back down to reality, to see Rome for what it really was. Because I think Paul was writing to this church knowing that a small little group like that that you saw, maybe 30 or 40 perhaps, meeting in a house in a massive city, just starting out on this Christian thing, this Christian journey, the first gathering in that place, it would have been very easy for the whole thing to collapse. Paul is very, very clear that they need to do something now in order to keep the message going, in order to keep the gospel spreading, because there is tribulation, there is hardship coming. This world is not how it should be. And so it squeezes you onto this narrow path, and if you want to follow Jesus, there is a very narrow path that you need to follow before you get out into that open, incredible paradise land. Because there is squeezing from the left and the right. 
This is why Paul says, be patient in tribulation. Because he knew for the next 5, 10, 15 years of that little church's life, the slaves would continue to be slaves. And maybe their families would stay in slavery. There would have been more wars spreading out and young men would have been recruited to those wars to fight against other nations and perhaps die. The infant mortality was unbelievably high in those days. And for that little church community, the amount of persecution would have just been going up and up from their workplaces, from their neighbors, from people that they used to perhaps go to synagogue with for the Jewish believers. The cultural pressure would go up and up and it would have squeezed them. And how do they respond? How should they respond to that? Well, it sounds quite boring, but they're just told to be patient. Show patience, because this is the long haul. God has got his, his eyes on the whole world knowing this, and it's a very small little group there in Rome. But if they could be patient, one day people in somewhere called England might know about this gospel message. It's the same in Revelation. Revelation pictures this mass persecution and various nations and everywhere where the gospel goes, spiritual forces and everything is trying to stop the advance of God's kingdom. And it says in Revelation, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God. What Paul is calling them to is not a short-term faith. See, it's actually quite easy to get people interested in Christianity because it's talking about the meaning of life, it's talking about various big things that people enjoy talking about. But it's very difficult to see people stay. They become interested just for a few moments, maybe this will solve my problems, maybe this will be a, a solution for this or that, maybe this will make me happier in the short term. But a long-term faith requires patient endurance. Paul does not want it to be a feelings-based faith where it, it, it rides on whether we're feeling like this is a good idea or not. He doesn't want our gatherings to be hype, all about hype. Can we, can we just get ourselves worked up enough so that we can encourage each other week on week so that we stay afloat? No, patient endurance. Or novelty-driven. We don't need to keep coming up with brand new things, even though I do a brand new thing today, in order to keep the faith alive. I could get rid of this, but we can still patiently endure. And I think for us, for us right now, this is so important. In our lifetimes, in the lifetime of this church, I imagine we may experience more cost of living crises. Perhaps things will get worse. Benefit cuts. Job losses. We might find political polarization gets even worse and there's so much wrong information in media it could get extremely difficult. Internationally, there are wars at the moment and there will be further wars, I'm, I'm sure of it. There may even in our lifetime or some of our children's lifetime be a nuclear war of some kind. It's quite likely there may be another pandemic that we have to face and try and figure out and navigate through. In your own life, there may be chronic health things, there may be family breakdown, there's all manner of things that 
all various different tribulations, things that are going to squeeze you, because this world is broken and it's decaying and it's dying. That is the world that we live in because Adam and Eve, right at the beginning, humanity decided maybe we can reach our full potential. Maybe we can see paradise and God doesn't need to be there. And so in in some way, they abandoned God and God abandoned them to their plans and said, go for it, create that world. And that world is constantly decaying dividing, destroying itself. And that is the world we are in. And so we should not be surprised if hardship continues, and especially if it comes close to home. These things may become very personal to us. And I just asked this question, how will you react in an unfair, broken world? I think for some, if you're stuck in the middle of this, if you cannot escape, if life is just tough, housing prices rocketing, you might find yourself not being able to pay bills, you are seeing major struggles with your kids and how they're growing up, whatever it is, and you're stuck in this, I think the the temptation can be to get aggressive, to be impatient, bitter, You start envying other people who have better lives than you. Or you become terrified of the future. Or even hopeless. And I think that's often underneath riots and protests that we see. People start to just try and take things into their own hands. And become violent about it because life is just not fair. If you're rich enough or privileged enough to escape the whole thing, then you might just try to ignore it. You might try and build up very strong walls around you and your family so that you don't feel the effects. I've heard of something that's becoming popular amongst wealthy wealthy middle class people often in the tech industry. It's called news sobriety. People who describe themselves as having been sober from the news or social media. They haven't checked anything for 10 years. They haven't looked at news sources. Now, I know for some of you, that might be a nice relief. And some people are too addicted to these things and need to be able to manage it. However, the idea that, oh, I can make my life better by cutting myself off from all external things. And if it's important, it will just end up with me in the end. (laughs) You're going to struggle to love your neighbor who is affected by other things. If you've cut yourself off purposefully, you're gonna really struggle in church when there are people from many different backgrounds here who are really struggling when whichever government comes in next will be hit by it. To not be able to empathize, to not be able to care because, oh, it's just me and I'm gonna make my life better. But that is what can happen if you have the resources. When things get tough, you just shut yourself off from the world. Think I'm better without it. But one day it will come creeping back into your household. Death, decay, it will come. And so what should we do? Well, again, we patiently endure. It's funny, Biola in the prayer meeting before this service prayed this, and I don't think she'd seen my script. Romans 8 
uh, very famously says, we know that the whole creation, all of the cosmos, all of the plants, the trees, the bees, everything, the birds, have been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. I think that what that's getting at is you can, you can experience unbelievable blessing from God sometimes. Your situation is just turned around. You see miracle after miracle and you experience God's spirit in you. This incredible hope and maybe an, a moment of amazing worship and it's almost as if you're there. And then you open your eyes and you get a text and it's bad news. Or you go home and you realize that there's a leak in your flat. And you're just inwardly groaning for that future day. For in this hope, we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We wait patiently, but we don't wait passively. I think this is the moment when Phoebe has been looking at Rome for what it really was, uh, with all of its decaying corners and broken buildings and maybe they saw some thieves beating up someone in a corner and thinking, my goodness. And then she says, right, now what we do, we go back and we pray. And we pray and we persevere in prayer. And I've just thought about perseverance in prayer. What does that imply? Because I grew up in a culture, I was a child growing up with Narnia um, C.S. Lewis books and Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter um, and various other cartoons. I grew up in a culture where when you, sp- there's a thing, when you speak and something happens, that's magic. So you cast spells and if you say the right thing in the right way, something's going to happen and if it doesn't happen, then you either didn't say, it, you, you didn't say it properly or you didn't feel it enough, something like that. I grew up in that kind of imaginary world. So when I became a Christian when I was 20, that is the imaginary world I brought into Christianity. So I thought, if I can just say the prayers correctly, if I can just have the perfect faith inside me, I will be able to make things happen just like that. And if it doesn't happen, then it's my fault because I wasn't doing it correct. Or some people swing in the opposite direction and say, well, nothing's clearly happening, therefore it's clearly all false. And then you see moves in the Christian world. I've heard teaching saying prayer is largely about you, changing you on the inside. It's largely speech therapy. It's you saying things out loud so that you yourself can become a better person. Now, there are elements, in true, uh, elements of truth in both of those, which is what makes them convincing ideas. But that isn't the big picture of prayer. What Paul is saying is, I've got something for you to do which is called prayer, and this takes effort and persistence and perseverance, and you're going to need to keep going and going with this. Because I think what prayer is, is pulling that future hope down into this harsh reality. It is pulling that, but it, actually what it's doing, I suppose, is inviting God into the situation at his pace, in his way. 
And think about Jesus with his disciples. Three different moments when they invite Jesus into a situation and it doesn't go quite to how they planned. In the boat, they were sailing in a boat and there was a major storm and Jesus was sleeping and they wake him up. Wake up, Jesus. They invite him into the situation. And then he stands up and he stops the entire storm and then they get terrified. What were they expecting then? They woke him up and said, save us. He saves them and they're like, oh. I think, I imagine, I wonder, were they just thinking he was going to create a little force field around them? The storm was going to carry on because this guy clearly can't control all of that, but maybe he can make my life a bit safer. Maybe he can just care for me, but he went above and beyond and did far more than they imagined. They got a bit freaked out by that. Or another situation when a man called Lazarus dies and his sisters, or he's ill, he's very sick, and Mary and Martha call for Jesus and they say, Jesus, come into our situation. And Jesus comes, but he purposefully comes too slowly. And Lazarus dies. And they were hoping that Jesus would come and heal a sick man, but he takes far too long to come into the situation. But then what he does is raises Lazarus from the dead to show them that actually God is even more powerful than their imaginations would allow. And I suppose what I'm saying here is Jesus invite God into a situation and don't be surprised if he does far more than you're expecting in your prayers. But it may come at a different timing to what you imagine. It may come more slowly, more quickly. It may be more cosmic and seismic. Who knows? But there is another story that I find interesting is a centurion. He, this would be a non-Jewish man, probably not raised in the synagogue, wouldn't necessarily know the scriptures as well as these disciples should have. And yet, the centurion comes to Jesus and says, can you heal my servant? And Jesus said, yeah, I'll come with you. And the centurion like, no, you don't need to. You can heal him from here. And Jesus says, I've never seen such faith in the whole of Israel than this man. So I do think there are moments as we grow in our maturity that we can perhaps get some sort of perception and and that prayer of faith where we really have a hunch of what God is going to do. But I suppose what I'm trying to encourage us is just in prayer, we persevere in prayer by just continually inviting God into our situations for him to do whatever he is going to do. We keep pulling this future hope into this now reality. And by doing that, we make the entire thing conditional on God, not on us. This is the myth of our human race, humanity in general. We think we're going to fix it. We think we're going to create the future paradise. This was, if you know any science history, this was the Enlightenment In the Enlightenment, they believed that we, through scientific progress, through technological advance, would bring about the Garden of Eden once again. We would bring about the future paradise for all humanity. And there was this idea of just inevitable progress. Things are just going to get better if humans keep working at them. But I think in the last few years, we've really started to not believe in that inevitable progress. And the world has shifted towards a conditional progress. 
if we just vote for Labour in the next election, we will have 10 years of renewal, is what they're promising us. If we just allow them to do their thing, or if we just turn off our light bulbs and stop eating meat and do, doing all these things, then the world will be saved. Or if companies can just change the way they're behaving. Now, in a separate message, I would preach on the importance, the absolute necessity of caring for the planet. But in this point, I want to say that the promises of humans saving the world are utterly ridiculous. Prayer is saying, your kingdom come, not we're coming, don't worry. <laughs> it's all about us inviting God's reality down here, and it, it's conditional on God. That's where we leave things. So I'm going to leave things here. So if the band come up, and I'm going to read from Revelation 21, which is that incredible future vision of reality. An amazing vision of the future that we're all going to inherit if you believe in Jesus. If you follow him, if you commit your life to him, you'll be there. And I make a really good gravy and round that table, I, I'll, I'll make some gravy for everyone who's here. Revelation said this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And then in Hebrews, it just says this. Let's let this lead us into worship. Why don't we stand? Here, in London, whatever town or city you're from, here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Father, we pray your kingdom come across the world into London into this church community into our households into our workplaces our schools let us be people who get excited about a future reality that you've promised let us be people who are able to help one another to patiently endure this harsh reality and let us be people who never stop praying for the two to come together in Jesus name Amen
Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.